0: Up, everyone
1: how's it All going right. we're, we're, we're coming in a little early from the music a little earlier from the music than we usually do we i don't are, know what happened are. there you know <laughs> yeah yeah Thank- but you
0: know at least we got that music in the background a nice little fade going on yeah. to bring us in nando how are you
1: I'm good. You know, typically I do like Ron Burgundy, where I just chug a full glass of scotch right before right before the show starts. Um, and I'm glad <laughs> I finished mine just before the music cut out early, and no one caught me, because that would have been very embarrassing.
0: <laughs> you love scotch, scotchy, scotch, scotch. You gotta have your yeah. scotch before the show, right? It gives you a I little mean, bit of absolutely.
1: An edge. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if not, I can't. I can't be charming in front of you people. I have too much uh, social anxiety, and I'll just, I'll just be, I'll just clam up. And yeah, uh, yeah, no, need, need need the, <laughs> I need the scotch.
0: You're definitely the last person I know um, who would have social anxiety. You're (laughs) like a social butterfly. It's pretty impressive. Um, But maybe you'll show off some of those skills on the show today uh, where we're going to have Liz Featherstone on. She's a columnist and freelance journalist, uh, and she will be... Joining us to talk about two pretty great columns that she wrote for Jacobin. One is about the liberal feminists who enabled uh, Andrew Cuomo, governor of New York, who just announced that he's going to be stepping down. And uh, she'll also talk about why she believes Obama is the worst ex-president ever. (laughs) So what's the argument behind that? I'm really looking forward to that discussion. Um, And Nando, what are you going to talk about in your decode today?
1: I'm going to talk about housing. Uh, I've talked about it before, but I'm going to focus specifically on on the homeless issue here in Los Angeles and specifically in Venice, where I live, just where my neighborhood. I'm going hyper local for today's show.
0: Yeah, I think Venice is a really, really good example of um, just failed housing policy in California. And to be quite honest, like the rest of the country that uh, doesn't really rely on Funding for public housing. They just like to move homeless people around and then give themselves a pat on the back for it. Um, I will be talking, what am I talking about? Oh, you know what? We're both doing kind of hyper local stories, but they have um, national ramifications. I'll be talking about the wildfires taking place in Northern California, but more importantly, the utility company, the publicly traded utility company behind all the fires that have started over like the last decade, and they've been absolutely disastrous. Actually, last several decades, to be clear. Um, but you know, I'll also offer up some solutions of what we can do to ensure that we don't have a profit motive behind um, these utility companies. But before we get to all of that, why don't we talk about the latest regarding the infrastructure bill um, in Congress? So A group of bipartisan lawmakers in the Senate congratulated themselves after they uh, passed a slimmed down version of what Biden's original infrastructure plan was. Uh, If you look at the details, if you look at the text of the bipartisan bill, it's literally thousands of pages long, you will find that there are many provisions included that amount to corporate handouts. Uh, The Decode segment that I did several weeks back regarding asset recycling, essentially privatizing public infrastructure, is in fact included. They just refer to it as uh, as concessions, asset concessions. So the bill, the bipartisan bill is, in my opinion, no bueno. Okay, it provides some funding for some of the things that we care about. But overall, uh, the bipartisan bill is not where our priorities are. It's the reconciliation bill, which will pass or could pass in the Senate with a simple majority. That means if every Democratic lawmaker in the Senate votes in favor of it, Kamala Harris can come in. She'd be the tie-breaking vote and uh, we could get the reconciliation bill passed. That bill is far better, doesn't go far enough, but certainly has... Funding for the priorities we care about, whether it be elder care, an expansion of Medicare uh, to the point where it covers more people and provides more coverage for things like dental and vision. So uh, there are many wonderful provisions in the reconciliation bill, which is being championed by Senator Bernie Sanders. But now we have a little bit of an issue. And I, I saw this issue coming from a mile away. Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker, claims that she will not under any circumstance bring the bipartisan bill for a vote unless she has both bills on her desk, because, I mean, it's the best way to do it. You want to ensure, first of all, I think separating, you know, the infrastructure bill to two separate bills was a dumb idea, but, um, you know. Progressives do have some leverage in the House. Nancy Pelosi has some leverage if she genuinely does care about passing the reconciliation bill. But we're already getting some bad signs from corporate Democrats. So uh, the latest is nine Democratic House, they refer to as moderates. Let's keep it real. They're conservative Democrats, and they're threatening to withhold their vote in the House um, for the reconciliation bill unless. Congress passes the bipartisan bill immediately, meaning, you know, Nancy Pelosi would need to renege on her promise that she will not vote or bring the bipartisan bill for a vote unless she has both pieces of legislation on her desk. And so one of those representatives is, uh, Vincente Gonzalez, who uh, tweeted this. I sent a letter with eight of my colleagues to Speaker Pelosi, urging her to bring the bipartisan Senate infrastructure bill to the house floor for a vote. ASAP this mm. bill deserves a straight up or down vote without being delayed by the reconciliation process i have more details on this letter some details um or actual excerpts from it but nando i want you to jump in and tell me what you think
1: so the the 3.5 trillion dollar reconciliation bill is pretty good right like i mean it's 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 not like what we would want here at jacobin but it it probably is the most significant piece of legislation maybe passed in 50, 60 years in, in, in the United States, certainly more than anything that happened under Obama or, or, or certainly Clinton. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we want that thing to pass. We, we really want that thing to pass. It would be very good. And the, I guess the, the price, the price that we have to pay to get that good stuff is this like awful bipartisan infrastructure, $1.1 $1. $1 trillion bill. So it's, it's weird because they're both kind of infrastructure bills, but, but there's two. So it's, it gets a little confusing, but that's the price. That we have to pay this like awful corporate handout of the $1.1 trillion bill. So I guess the logic was like, okay, we, Nancy Pelosi can, she won't pass one without the other, right? Like, you know, that, that, that's the, that's the, that's the sort of counter gambit. And the whole point is that, you know, they needed to do this whole thing because they needed to get the conservative Democrats in the Senate um, to sign on to, to the reconciliation thing. So they passed, they, they got this other one. Um, so that mansion and cinema and whatever can claim bipartisanship or whatever. Um, and I mean, I think to me the the move is fairly obvious. If these nine Democratic House members are holding this whole thing up, just call their bluff. I mean, they're not right. gonna, they're not gonna. <laughs> the president is behind this. Nancy Pelosi is behind this. Like, the business community is definitely behind the the big one point one trillion dollar uh, bill. Totally. I just don't see them. Having the backbone to hold out. I mean, these people aren't. I, I suspect that they're not like the 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 Freedom Caucus that that uh, brought down Obama and Mitch uh, and uh, Boehner's grand bargain um, back in like 2011 or 2012. I don't remember exactly yeah. what year. This
0: is the problem solvers caucus. The
1: problem solvers caucus. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. One of my favorite. <laughs> one of my favorite caucuses. Um, right. I think it's fairly obvious. And, and then I think like. If if there are signs that Biden and Pelosi start relenting, then then the squad has to has to call their bluff and has to bring down the whole thing too. You know, yeah. you need the mutually assured destruction um, here and and see which one which side blinks first. Because I I reckon that the nine conservative Democrats won't have the backbone. To, these guys are these guys are losers. They're losers. They're nobodies. Like look at their names. You haven't heard of any of them. You know, um, yep. they're not gonna you know, they're not gonna do that. So I I think like it's just. It's a game of chicken and, and side yes. blinks first.
2: Yeah. yep,
0: I, I think you're absolutely right about that. I wanted to um, first go to one of many videos. I mean, to Nancy Pelosi's credit, on multiple occasions, she unequivocally said what you're about to see in this next video.
2: I'm not taking up that. I mean, people want me to take it oh, take it up. Like, oh yeah, no, I think we were able to get support for the bigger package, the 3.5 trillion because there was the other bipartisan package. And I think we are able to get the bipartisan package because we had the 3.5. So they are, shall we say, uh, com- uh, compatible in my view.
0: So I, I say to Nancy Pelosi's credit, because it, that wasn't the first time she said it, she's been on the record multiple times making a similar statement. And she's pretty unequivocal in, in that statement. So I don't, I, feel, I always feel a little uncomfortable having too much faith in Pelosi, but I also feel like if she didn't intend on following through on this, she probably wouldn't say it repeatedly. And so I guess for better or worse, Nancy Pelosi would be the first line of defense, but you're absolutely right. Um, I think a more robust line of defense would be the progressive lawmakers who have uh, signaled that they will not vote in favor of the bipartisan bill. They will withhold their vote as a block. Um, unless they also see the reconciliation bill um, up for a floor vote. And so there's going to be a lot of pressure toward them to cave, and we'll see how it plays out. But I do want to also, um, you know, give you a little bit of what this letter from the conservative Democrats say. This is the letter they sent to Pelosi because their framing is hilarious. They're pretending as if they care about working Americans. They don't at all, of course. Uh, Some have suggested that we hold off on considering the Senate infrastructure bill for months until the reconciliation process is completed. We disagree. With the livelihoods of hardworking American families at stake, we simply can't afford months of unnecessary delays and risk squandering this once-in-a-century bipartisan infrastructure package. They continue to write, and this is where they issue the threat, and I agree with you, Nando, I think this is hollow, we will not consider voting for the budget resolution, that's the reconciliation bill, until the Bipartisan Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act passes the House and is signed into law, There are not sufficient votes to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill this month. Um, This is uh, nine. So nine Democrats signed on to this letter. There are dozens upon dozens who will vote against the bipartisan infrastructure bill unless it's after the Senate passes reconciliation. And that's a statement, by the way, from senior Democrats who disagree with the threats issued um, by these uh, corporate Democrats. So we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah. No, it's, um, it's going to be, you know, all the political, all the political nerds and wonks are like rubbing their hands because this is, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a game of, uh, it's a game of political brinksmanship. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and they love to see this kind of thing, but, uh. I don't know. I, 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 The people that I talk to that kind of watch this thing closer than I do, which I, which because I, I don't watch it that closely, like the little ins and outs of the negotiations of the day to day things that are going on in in the House and Senate, seem pretty confident that the that the big three point five trillion dollar bill will end up passing. I mean, some version of it. Maybe, maybe they'll do like some symbolic haircuts here and there, um, but that the that the that the 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 vast majority of it will will go through in some way, which will be interesting because i mean i it's it, it speaks to Bernie's power within within the the government these days as as senate budget chairman um and and i like weirdly like it it really could save the Joe Biden presidency, which is already like sinking fast, and yep. uh, and and if they can do it in time, maybe it'll save the Democratic majority in in the House and, and Senate in 2022. Although it, they might not make it in time, um, so yeah, we'll we'll yeah. keep it. We'll keep a close eye on it. <laughs>
0: absolutely, absolutely. Well, Nando, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about our partner, and then we'll get to our decodes.
1: Absolutely. Well, our partner is Verso Books. And if you join the Verso Book Club, you get every new ebook that Verso publishes each month, as well as one or more books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members will also get 50% off everything on the website, including the Comrade Verso tote bag, for as long as you are a subscriber. All memberships are 50% off for your first three months. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month. And if you join in August, you'll get these four books. A World Without Police, How Strong Communities Make Cops Obsolete by Gio Mar, Investigative Aesthetics, Conflicts and Commons and the Politics of Truth by Matthew Fuller and Iyal Wiseman, The Age of Precarity, Endless Crisis as an Art of Government by Dario Gentili, and a new edition of The Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State by Friedrich Engels, with a new introduction by Jennifer Doyle. That's four books for $20 a month. That's $5 per book. Pretty good.
0: That's a pretty good deal. Everyone go check out Verso. I love it. All right. Well, let's get to our very California based stories, but uh, stories that I think apply to every part of the country. Uh, So let's do it. Here's my decode. Each year, uncontrollable fires Blaze in the state of California. They destroy entire communities, leaving behind a path of climate-fueled destruction. Now, the Dixie fire, for example, which continues to burn, has completely devastated small towns in northern California, including Greenville and Canyon Dam.
3: Inside Greenville, there's nothing to burn, there's nothing left standing, and it is just one of the most heartbreaking sites you can see the entire scope of my vision in a 360 panoramic is nothing but ruins of destroyed buildings. As you mentioned, 75 percent of this town gone. Uh, so you see from every once in a while, you know, the scattered memories and remnants of generations that have lived here. This is a gold rush era historical town. We found buildings that were built in the late 1800s that had burned down here. And speaking to families, who are now displaced outside of this community and nearby communities that are still at risk. All there is is worry and fear about what is here. And it's going to be a lot of heartbreak as people come back to find nothing left where their home should be standing.
0: Each year, we get one devastating wildfire after the next. Uh, But more importantly, each year, the wildfires become more intense. They burn for a longer period of time and cover more acreage. And this blaze in particular has been burning for more than a month. And it's now the largest standalone fire in California history.
4: It's also the largest currently burning in the U.S., incinerating some 450,000 acres, an area triple the size of Chicago. The massive inferno driven by historic drought conditions and winds fueling a blowtorch.
3: Fire was driven by 25 to sometimes gusting to 40 mile an hour winds. This really with explosive fire growth.
4: Four firefighters have been injured, one still recovering in the hospital. And with more than 30,000 forced from their homes, monstrous clouds of smoke from several large fires can be seen from space. Blanketing areas from Salt Lake City to Denver with dangerous air quality among the worst in the world.
0: Now, of course, the remarkably dry conditions on the ground. A consequence of climate related drought has fueled this uncontrollable uh, fire. And uh, one official with the California Department of Forestry and Fire Protection says that the live trees that are now there uh, have a lower fuel moisture than you would find when you go to a hardware store or a lumber yard and get that piece of lumber that's kiln dried. It's that dry. So it doesn't take much for any sort of embers, sparks or small flaming front to get that going. And based on the recent report by the UN's um, intergovernmental panel on climate change, the IPCC, um, things are unlikely to get any better anytime soon unless we take some pretty drastic actions And unfortunately, the government doesn't seem willing to do that. So the report found that carbon pollution has risen to such extremes that a key threshold in the fight to stop climate change, limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century, will actually be crossed within the next 15 years. Again, unless we do some pretty drastic measures uh, to curb CO2 emissions. Now, today's average global temperature is already 1.1 Celsius higher than the industrial average, thanks to emissions pumped into the air since the mid-1800s. And climate change also means that these fires do, in fact, burn faster and for a longer period of time.
2: In California, our fire season is now two and a half months longer than it used to be, which means that people are at risk all the time. And as you mentioned, we're seeing record heat waves, not just in Los Angeles County, but also in Santa Barbara County, San Luis Obispo County. And all that heat is really increasing risk for fires we know because of research from scientists that we have 500 percent more risk for wildfires during this climate changed world than we would have before and that's because it's really hot and dry because we have had droughts and of course that drought which is caused by climate change has led to a lot of vegetation dying meaning there's a lot of brush lying around that can easily light up and a little spark from a gender reveal party or whatever it is can end up being a massive inferno very quickly.
0: Which brings us to what started the Dixie Fire in the first place. Pacific Gas and Electric, a utility company that is publicly traded on the stock market, has in fact already reported that it could be to blame. PG&E reported to the California Public Utilities Commission that its equipment may have been involved in the start of the Big Dixie Fire. In fact, here's the CEO of PG&E, Patricia Pope, explaining what happened in greater detail.
5: On July 13th, a fault was initiated on our line by a tree falling on our line. We received a word that there was a fault, and we dispatched a troubleman to go and discover and try and find the arduous task of discovering where is the fault on this system. And so he went out and did what he does best under extraordinary conditions. And he searched and he finally found and was the first on the scene to discover a 70-foot pine tree that had been about 40 feet away from our lines. He described it as a green and healthy-looking tree laying on our otherwise normally functioning lines, doing exactly what they are designed to do.
0: Now, PG&E CEO Patricia Pope is mentioning that the tree looked healthy and that their equipment was functioning the way that it was supposed to for a good reason. As it did in the past, PG&E is facing yet another investigation over its faulty equipment, starting another fire. So prosecutors launched an investigation into PG&E's involvement in the Dixie Fire because the fire is burning in parts of Plumas and Butte counties. Both are involved in the investigation. Butte County prosecutors successfully convicted PG&E of starting the campfire and of 84 felony counts of manslaughter. And we'll get back to that lawsuit in just a moment. But Pacific Gas and Electric has basically been consistently embroiled in these types of controversies and legal fights for the last several decades.
3: In 1996, PG&E settled a multimillion dollar lawsuit alleging it tainted drinking water around Hinkley, California. In 2001, the California energy crisis resulted in rolling blackouts and drove the corporation's utility arm to file for bankruptcy. And in 2010, a PG&E gas pipeline exploded in San Bruno, California, killing eight people.
0: And it doesn't stop there. There are so many examples to share with you all, including uh, PG&E vice president saying on camera, That a PG&E power line started the 2019 Kincaid fire, which injured four people and destroyed hundreds of homes in Sonoma County. Cal Fire also said in a report this year that the deadly Zog fire in 2020 was sparked after a pine tree hit PG&E distribution lines. Now PG&E is responsible for clearing brush or trees that come close to its equipment, and of course, it is supposed to be responsible for updating its equipment uh, in order to prevent fires from being sparked. And unfortunately, there's quite a bit of evidence indicating that they have not done that. PG&E has been around for a very long time. In fact, much of its much of its equipment is extremely old and needs to be updated immediately. All of these disasters that the utility company found itself entangled in made it clear, though, that the company failed to update its equipment and take other critical measures to prevent these fires in the first place.
3: Outside of Paradise is a high voltage transmission line owned by PG&E. The 56 mile line known as the Caribou Palermo was built in 1921. Its towers and lines tap into a hydroelectric system known as the Stairway of Power. PG&E estimated the mean life expectancy of its high-voltage transmission towers was 65 years old, but the company estimated the average age of all the towers still in service was 68. The oldest towers in the system were 108 years old. According to a PG&E list obtained by the Wall Street Journal, the Caribou Palermo was one of the grid's worst performing circuits. It also ran through areas that were identified as posing elevated and extreme fire risks. In 2017, PG&E Equipment started 18 fires that killed 22 people, according to state fire officials. According to an internal presentation from that same year, the company said it needed a plan to replace its steel structure transmission towers and better manage its equipment to prevent it from causing fires.
0: Now, of course, uh, regardless of how many fires have been started as a result of their faulty equipment, I mean, they have towers that are as old as 108 years old. And the fact that they're not updating this equipment and they claim that they will or they claim that they've allocated funding in order to do all this. I mean, we keep seeing year after year in case after case that they haven't done what they claim that they're going to do. And people are not only losing their homes, they're losing their lives as a result of this incompetence, this negligence, but more importantly, this greed. That's what's at the heart of the decision making. For this publicly traded utility company. Remember, they have a fiduciary responsibility to return, uh, to provide a return on the investment of their shareholders. And since PG&E, again, is this uh, publicly traded company, its executives have decided, you know, maybe we're going to cut some costs and not update equipment that's as old as 108 years old. Um, So that objective inevitably puts Californians at a massive disadvantage.
6: Internal records incriminating evidence showing that PG&E is decimating its tree trimming budget. One contractor reports that its workforce has been reduced 49.7%. And even PG&E's own employees send warnings. The potential for a major fire is very real. And it's not just cutting budgets. Ross learns that PG&E actually diverts nearly $80 million earmarked to trim trees into company profits.
3: They sacrifice safety. Money that should have been put into making sure their lines were safe, went into their own pockets and into the pockets of their shareholders.
2: It's hard for people to imagine how a large, wealthy, well-established corporation could be that callous, but it's all about the money.
0: It is, in fact, all about the money because it is, in fact, a publicly traded corporation. So it shouldn't be shocking or surprising to anyone that they decided to divert the $80 million that should have been used to uh, clear trees and update their equipment on returning uh, dividends in some cases to their shareholders. Now, let's go back to uh, one of the deadliest fires in California history, and that was the Camp Fire, which started on November 8th of 2018. Now, it was ignited by a faulty electric transmission line, and the next video has more details on that.
3: On the morning of November 8th, 2018, winds picked up before sunrise near Paradise. A hook connecting a power line to a Caribou-Palermo tower failed, causing the line to strike the tower and emit sparks that fell to the ground. A few minutes later, a PG&E worker spotted a small fire near the tower. That fire grew quickly.
2: Oh my god.
3: By 8 a.m., local officials had given the order to evacuate. By 1045, the fire had overtaken parts of paradise.
2: Trying to get out of paradise. This
3: is bad. Oh my God! County Carcina is bad. Hey guys! By 6 p.m., the fire had completely consumed the town. In the aftermath, the local sheriff's office said bodies were found in vehicles most likely of people who were trying to escape the fire. Anthropologists and a forensic dentists were tasked with identifying human remains that sometimes consisted only of a few bone fragments or teeth.
0: Eighty-five people died as a result of the campfire. I mean, it was a complete and utter tragedy. Paradise was burnt to the ground. That entire community was absolutely devastated. And much like other cases outlined, the utility company in court proceedings was found to have neglected its aging equipment despite the risks associated with doing so.
3: The Wall Street Journal investigation revealed the company knew that 57 of the steel towers on the Caribou-Palermo line needed hardware replaced, and another 49 towers needed to be replaced entirely before the campfire. In 2013, PG&E told federal regulators it had a $30 million plan to replace equipment on the caribou Palermo line, but it repeatedly delayed the project for five years. It was slated to begin as late as June 2018, but it didn't happen.
0: Now, what's about to follow, I mean, it just continues to add insult to injury, because clearly these fires were sparked by the negligence and greed by PG&E. And so understandably, the victims of these fires took pg and to court. And uh, during court proceedings, uh, it was just very clear. I mean, in fact, PG&E did uh, plead guilty to 84 counts of manslaughter. So it gives you a sense of um, how aware they are of their own guilt and, and their own hand in starting these wildfires in the first place. But they decided to file for bankruptcy after being fi- found liable for these massive fires. PG&E sought bankruptcy uh, protection in January of 2019 after accumulating an estimated 30 billion dollars in liability for fires started by its poorly maintained equipment. But Aaron Brockovich rightly called into question the fact that pg and decided to file for bankruptcy because it wasn't the first time they did it. They had done it in the past for a very specific reason.
5: I've seen them time and time again use bankruptcy as a tool to get out of liability or paying their claims. And I have found it of late very recently that uh, Blue Mountain Capital, which I have here, has an open letter to PG&E that they have absolute overwhelming evidence that the company is solvent. So I don't know other than a tactic to file bankruptcy to get out of their responsibility why the state is going to let us get into that type of chaos with this company again.
0: Brockovich certainly had reason to be concerned. Uh, Not only did she have uh, case studies in the past where PG&E specifically filed for bankruptcy in order to avoid liability, uh, but if you look at some of their lobbying activity, it gives you a sense of... uh, Why the system is on their side and how they've been able to get away with this awful behavior for decades? Lee Fong writes in the Intercept that PG&E spent millions on lobbying following bankruptcy, winning—I'm sorry, whining and dining lawmakers who sponsored the bailout. And yes, PG&E ended up getting bailed out, and I'll give you more details on that in just a second. Uh, But I do think the subheadline is also important where Lee Fong writes the latest ethics filings disclosed with the California Secretary of State show PG&E has spent at least $2.1 million on lobbying policymakers this year. So what exactly came of those bankruptcy proceedings? I honestly think that it could be considered worse than what uh, Aaron Brockovich uh, outlined in that interview, because the way the victims would be compensated also happens to force them to root for the very company that destroyed their lives in the first place. It's incredible. So as part of its bankruptcy agreement, PG&E agreed to form a trust meant to reward shares, shares, publicly traded shares of PG&E as a huge part of the victim's compensation. And this put desperately needed settlement money at the mercy of the market. CNBC reported that the Victim Relief Trust received 478 million shares of the reorganized company's stock, making it the utility's largest shareholder. The fund is meant to compensate more than 70,000 victims of 24 wildfires. 70,000 victims of 24 wildfires and they're rewarded or I should say I should say rewarded, they're compensated through shares of a company that has destroyed their lives. That means that they would be required to root for the financial success of the company in order to maximize profits. What would PG&E need to do? More of the same negligent, greedy, cost-cutting behavior that led to these fires in the first place. In fact, a court-appointed trustee, John Trotter of the Victim Fire Trust, uh, said that the victims of the fires should root for these public for this company uh, because of the fact that they're now a massive shareholder. You are 25 or 24 and a half percent owners of PG&E. So it's important for you to want PG&E to do well. I mean, come on. How incredible is that? How sick is that? Now, if you really think about it, the stock's performance is, again, tied to the company's ability to maximize profits, which does in fact mean that they need to uh, engage in all the risky uh, cost-cutting behavior that they have in the past. Uh, But regardless of PG&E's liability, lawmakers in California have actually gone out of their way to have the company's back. And that brings us back To some of Lee Fong's incredible reporting on this story, uh, because that loyalty from California lawmakers, essentially these corporate Democrats who claim that they care about the ordinary American, um, did not come cheap. So PG&E has spent at least $2.1 million on lobbying policymakers in 2019, well after declaring bankruptcy. They declare bankruptcy and then spend $2.1 million on lobbying, with hefty fees spent to retain half a dozen prominent consulting firms and branding experts, along with a team of in-house lobbyists. The Intercept continues to report that the company also paid for beverages for California State Assemblyman uh, Chad Mayers, or Mays, I should say, and Assemblyman uh, Rob Bonta. Both lawmakers sponsored legislation introduced in February of 2019 to provide PG&E and get this with as much as 20 billion dollars in tax exempt bonds a measure widely criticized as a bailout by ratepayers because it is it is a bailout it's absolutely a bailout when in reality the state of California should have done a public takeover of this utility company And guess what? They spent a fortune to make sure that they got the government on their side. In 2018, the company spent nearly $10 million on campaign donations and lobbying, more than any other single political entity in the state of California, largely to control the fallout from outrage over the company's role in fueling wildfires across Northern California. But look, we try to offer up some solutions here at Jacobin, and... Luckily, uh, Spencer Roberts wrote a fascinating piece on what potential solutions can be. Now, he starts off with what I believe is a pretty practical solution that's been uh, used in other parts of the country for. So he writes that from California to Puerto Rico and all across the world, movements are pushing for um, making these local energy distributions, um, municipal something that's owned by municipalities, citing existing successes. Nebraskans already publicly own their grid and are one of the nation's leaders in wind power implementation. Germans recently transitioned their grid to public ownership and quickly became world leaders in renewable energy, often paying negative rates for energy usage. So again, I think that this is a practical option, and this is the option that we would have gone in if it weren't for people like Governor Gavin Newsom and other corporate Democrats in the state legislature being bought off uh, by PG&E. But Spencer Roberts goes further in his Jacobin piece, and I think this is the fascinating solution that should be explored. He writes, what we need now is a wholesale structural reform, a nationwide transition to public ownership of all utilities through a universal single-payer power program. So I love this idea. I think that this is uh, honestly the best possible solution because as he writes, under a universal single-payer power program, each home would receive a per capita energy dividend based on the average usage in their region. If they exceed their dividend, they would basically receive a bill. If they greatly exceeded it, they would enter a new tier where they paid a higher rate per kilowatt hour. I think that that's a better option. But even if we don't get to that point anytime soon, it's common sense for the people of California to take control of this utility company. If it's publicly traded, it's going to have that giant objective that works against the best interests of Californians. They're going to want to maximize profits in order to provide a better return to their shareholders. That is their fiduciary responsibility. But what about their responsibility to the people of California? Honestly, that doesn't really weigh into the equation unless you talk about regulations, which, of course, they can scale back with more corporate lobbying, or unless you take over the company and ensure that this is a utility company that is controlled by the people of California nando
1: i did not know that pg was a private company traded on the stock market i mean that is just yeah i think if you explain that kind of thing to a german or something they'd look at you like you were insane like that you were lying to them that that would be impossible that something like a electric utility company that handles the electricity for an estate you know the size of Germany, essentially. Um, would be publicly traded um, and run for profit. I mean, that's just crazy. If there's just this is the inevitable uh, consequence of that is 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 what we see is like they have to live on the very edge. You know, they have to let these machines and these you know electrical power line grids and things like that like go down, whittle down to the very edge um, in order to maximize profit instead of like. Yep factoring in different social concerns, which they don't care about because they they can't. You know, like this is like the, this is what you, uh, it's an important point to sort of hammer into people's heads. Like it's not the evilness of the CEO of PG&E. If he was a good guy, he'd get fired, you know? <laughs> like he'd get fired and replaced by someone who was willing to do the, the same exact things. It's the, it's the for-profit system. Like when you have profit um, at the heart of this, this is what you get you know you just have to and you have to change that calculus uh fundamentally and if you want anything to change and i mean the fact that we have you know the fact that we have these private ele- electrical companies is just crazy i mean we talked about the the texan the texas issue when texas mm-hmm. froze do you remember that um yeah. a little bit of a similar situation here just on the flip side uh here california's burning it's not freezing um but the fact that we don't have public control Uh, over these things. And we're just kind of out on the sidelines, like begging them to, to, you know, fix their, fix their infrastructure is just absolutely crazy to me.
0: Yeah. And it's, it is fascinating that in their settlement agreement, they decided to implement a model that we see in the corporate world, but in the, in the, you know, context of executives versus workers, right? Because, uh, how do most executives at these major corporations get compensated? Their salaries are nothing, right? They really get compensated through stock options. And so in order for them to increase their personal wealth, uh, through these stock options, They need to cut costs, which means nickel and diming their workers, overworking their workers, providing um, little to no benefits for them. And uh, it it pits these executives against uh, the very people who are, let's keep it real, being exploited for their labor, right, Um, even further. And so what PG&E managed to do through this settlement structure was ensure that they got the very people who they destroyed the lives of. To root for them because if right. they don't root for them, if they don't advocate for cost-cutting measures, their settlements will be much smaller. It's so sick. The whole it's system crazy. is sick. It really is. Uh,
1: yeah. <laughs> I mean,
0: yeah. Uh, well, man I, I don't, even, I don't uh, even know what to
1: say like to <laughs> something like that. It's just crazy.
0: Luckily, uh, you've got a cheery segment to follow yeah. mine. Well, <laughs> I'm uh, sarcastic. Similar.
1: Obviously it's a similar um idea in that when you leave something that is fundamental to the to the social order up to uh profit the profit motive then a few handful of the top are going to get rich while the rest of us uh suffer and i'm talking about housing Because the COVID-19 pandemic has really laid bare just how urgent the housing crisis is in this country. It's a crisis that affects the vast majority of the American people in basically every city and state in the country. According to new data by the National Low-Income Housing Coalition, quote, nearly half of American workers do not earn enough to rent a one-bedroom apartment. Think about that. Half of American workers do not make enough to rent a one-bedroom apartment. Rents in the U.S. continued to increase throughout the pandemic, and a worker now needs to earn about $20.40 an hour to afford a modest one-bedroom rental. The median wage in the U.S. is about $21 an hour. So there you go. Half of those people uh, on the bottom side of the median wage uh, can't afford a one-bedroom apartment. And despite the fact that the pandemic has frozen much of the country's economic activity, the cost of housing has continued to increase. Average rents uh, decreased in many places early in the pandemic, but in May 2021, prices increased by 0.46%, the largest monthly increase since 2014, when the real estate site Zillow started tracking this data. So while most Americans are struggling to meet their housing costs, the tip of the spear of the crisis has been the homelessness issue. In many cities around the country, but especially here in LA, homelessness has become the central political issue. And contrary to popular belief, the homelessness issue is tied to the rise in housing prices, Quote, in a study contained in the latest UCLA Anderson forecast released Wednesday, UCLA found that higher median rent and home prices are strongly correlated with more people living on the streets or in shelters. The research backs other studies that have found a similar relationship. Last year, Zillow released a study that showed that a 5% rent hike in L.A. County, where more than 50,000 people are estimated to be homeless, would cause 2,000 additional people to lose their home. Now, I live in Venice, which is arguably the nationwide center of the homelessness crisis in America. And I live just down the street from the famous Venice Boardwalk, you know, where Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes hustled suckers for money on the basketball court and white men can't jump. But in recent years, the boardwalk has essentially become a massive homeless encampment.
6: Hundreds and hundreds of movies were filmed down here in Venice and countless of celebrities I spotted right here on the Venice Boardwalk vendors down here that pay thousands and thousands of dollars rent just to get a spot right here on the boardwalk and then we got all those homeless encampments right across from them it's not only the problem with the homeless people it's more those mentally ill people they need medication or the ones they're on heavy drugs they're like really aggressive and it's not really safe to be down here my channel, German in Venice. I love Venice Beach. The reason why I'm in the United States is because I saw Venice Beach on TV all the time, the rollerblader, all the movies. And I thought, I want to be in this place. But it changed so much. I've been here almost 30 years, and it's not what it used to be anymore.
1: That guy's YouTube YouTube channel, German in Venice, gets millions of views on every single video, and he pumps out a lot of videos. Um, I will Never understand YouTube. Uh, but he's not the only one. Many of the locals here are extremely anxious about the homeless situation, like legendary Venice boardwalk merchant Derek Vog. And once the pandemic hit, it's when the police were
6: more so hands off. You can check for yourself, you can look it up. Crime rate has went up over 300 percent in yes. Venice alone. A lot of people don't want to come out here,
1: and the ones that are out here are unaware. Like these guys? Yeah, they're 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 blind. They don't know what's going on. Tourists?
4: They're tourists, yeah. but we need but them this, back. But this is the but number we, one tourism destination in, in it was, LA. It was isn't the
6: it? second, third.
4: Disneyland and then. Disney, okay. All right. But
6: yes, we want the tourism, but we want this shit cleaned up for them to feel comfortable. Why would you want to take your little girl walk past playing camp? Right. You know, I don't have anything against the homeless. Yeah. I feel that there are some that choose to live this way. There's some that need help. If you if you look closely, you see a lot of people talk to themselves. It's not just the drugs. It's also people not taking their medicines or their meds. You know, it's people out here with serious issues, and they're just pushing them on the beach and leaving them be. If you're down here, you're good. They have a bus to come pick them up at night when it gets cold, and then they'll drop them right back off here. You know, why would you drop them off and not police them at the same time? How you doing, sister? Good. It's always good to see you. How, how do you feel about Venice Beach? Do you love it as much I as you? I love Venice Beach. You love it? Of and where course. you from?
5: I'm from Russia. Russia. Wow.
4: Wow. She can hang. How
3: you
5: doing? Ah,
4: man. Well, she's a tough cookie. <laughs> Russia <laughs> don't give a
3: fuck.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I had to include that last bit. So the city councilman that oversees Venice Beach is a guy named Mike Bonin, who my sources say is a solid Bernie bro. He himself has experienced homelessness back in the 1980s, and he's been instituting a plan to clean up the Venice boardwalk in a humane way.
4: It's the end of week one of a six-week plan to systematically house the homeless and clean up the boardwalk. Whatever random things I found out here, you know, this is all, you know, found out here, left behind. 32-year-old Brian said, originally from Florida, says he's been homeless here for a year. Spent his first night indoors at the Cadillac Hotel last night. Part of Project Room Key, the state-funded shelter program Los Angeles participates in. Brian's one of more than 70, the city says, has accepted interim housing so far. People are taking the the help, you know, and then there's some people out here that,
1: you know. So, yeah, this project has actually been pretty successful here in Venice. Uh, And this was in stark contrast to the effort to clear the homeless encampment in Echo Park, which was done using uh, brute force. According to an LA Times LA editorial, quote, over the course of six weeks, service providers aided by local officials moved 211 homeless people who had encamped uh, along the Venice boardwalk for more than a year. Most of them now have interim housing, mainly in hotels and motels. A handful went to the transitional shelter in Venice. Did it cost a lot of money? Yes. Did it take a lot of effort? Yes. In fact, it took a village of outreach workers and others to move and temporarily house the scores of people who had made their beach the beach their home. What it did not take was a force of 750 Los Angeles police officers, as was the case during the tense showdown at Echo Park Lake in the spring, when a large encampment there was cleared out. To be sure, there were police at Venice Beach, but according to the city officials and the service providers at the nonprofit St. Joseph Center, which carried out the plan to move the beach dwellers into temporary housing, the police supported their efforts rather than complicating them. One big accomplishment... The effort gave lie to the trope that homeless people living on the street are service-resistant. Even people who profess their love of the view of the ocean from their tents left for brick-and-mortar housing. The vast majority of people living by the boardwalk at the end of June agreed to take housing by the end of July. So, that's good. But, increasing home prices everywhere, everywhere in the country means more homelessness. So, why do these home prices keep going up? Well, a big reason why is that Um, that it's very difficult to build more units in a lot of American cities. And the units that are built tend to be luxury housing, which is not much more expensive than building middle or low-income housing, but the potential profits are much greater. And in his term as mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti has focused more on subsidizing the building of hotels with public money in an effort to spur tourism in anticipation of things like the Olympics and the World Cup. Think about that. The city of LA facing a homelessness crisis was using public money to build hotels. Now, the situation in downtown L.A. captures the absurdity perfectly. Downtown L.A. is home to Skid Row, probably the largest hom- homeless encampment in, in America. In downtown L.A., there today, in downtown L.A., there are actually more vacant, publicly funded hotel rooms than there are unhoused people. This is from a piece in Knock L.A. Quote, at least... 4,923 hotel rooms in downtown are part of luxury projects that have benefited from public money or land, while there are 3,884 sheltered and unsheltered homeless people within Skid Row and the adjoining neighborhood of Little Tokyo. So activists organized to get the city and the state to appropriate public money to buy back hotels and use them as housing solutions for the homeless.
2: L.A. County recently purchased 10 motels and hotels through the program project called HomeKey. That's all part of the state effort to provide rooms for those who are homeless. NBC4's John Caddy's Klingback has more now from Baldwin Park.
3: If this looks
4: like a motel, it's because it used to be one. This was a Motel 6 here in Baldwin Park. It is now going to be home for 71 people
3: experiencing homelessness
6: not a really pleasant experience no certainly not
3: he was sleeping on park benches and ultimately on skid row when he says he got lucky meeting a case manager from exodus recovery helmet Mertinek had just been released from prison
4: served time for embezzlement but had nowhere to go so when i came back from incarceration i was pretty much on my own now this is home where he can focus on life's next chapter
6: this gives me at least a step you know to establish my own footprint okay i'm able to write resumes now getting maybe a job application going i'll send out about 200 resumes
1: so in december of 2020 mike Bonin, the city council member in charge of venice took advantage of this program and used $5 million in public funds to purchase a Ramada Inn, which is one of the places where a lot of the homeless who were cleared off the boardwalk ended up. So it sounds great, right? You know, we have all these hotels. They're being being—they're not being used. They were subsidized by public money. So we'll just buy them back and, and use them as temporary housing for homeless. They can get back on their feet and, you know, they can get service by service workers and mental health experts and things like that. So it all sounds great. Well, not to the homeowners of Venice who organized furiously to stop the conversion of the Ramada Inn into housing for the homeless. This is from a piece in West Side Current. Quote, During Wednesday's hearing, Tracy Park from Families First Venice said that the impact the change of the use of the Ramada Inn would have on the community for the next 55 years will be significant. Quote, We are a very small community. This homeless pow- problem is choking our neighborhoods. It's not an objection to the shelters we have. It's the city's failure to take care of what takes place within them that concerns us. And then this other neighbor... A guy named uh, Robin Rudis, Rudisil uses one of the most insane arguments I've ever heard. The former cha- he's the former chair of uh, Venice's Land Use and Planning Committee. pointed out that the Ramada Inn gave access to hardworking families who couldn't otherwise afford hotels on the beach of boutique alternatives. Taking away affordable hotels like the Ramada is likely to change the character of Venice for decades to come. That's a good one. You love to see it. So the reactionary forces opposing Mike Bonin have found a very, very powerful ally in the sheriff of Los Angeles County, a guy named Alex Villanueva, who has essentially gone, a, gone to war against him in an attempt to deal with the homeless issue using a law and order
4: approach. He was there today as the homeless outreach services hit the boardwalk. What we saw was human misery. But LA City Council member Mike Bonin says their presence was a disruption. The approach we're trying to take in Venice is to house people uh, without having to use uh, uniforms and badges and guns. Not living in a police state. Some seem to welcome the help. Uh, Bonin says within weeks there should be additional funding for housing and mental health. And though he dismisses Villanueva in Venice as a, quote, stunt, he offered this message. Sheriff, if, you, if you've if you got some actual housing resources uh, you can bring, uh, if you're willing to uh, cooperate uh, with agencies, uh, we're certainly willing to listen. Now, this political battle only continues late into the evening. We asked Councilmember Bonin, are you going to explore avenues to try and keep Villanueva out of Venice? He says no, he is going to stay calm and continue to work towards delivering housing and shelter and services. But just 20 minutes ago, Sheriff Villanueva, as I read this off of my phone, posts on social media, Mr. Bonin, wherever you are, and I'm quoting here, Chuck, get out of the way.
1: That sounds like a threat. Now, right right now, Mike Bonin is facing a recall election organized by the Venice homeowners. And there are signs advocating for his recall all over my neighborhood. Like, my neighbors all have him up. And it's worth noting that Nithya Raman, the socialist city council member who was elected on a platform of Humane Solutions to the Homelessness Problem, is also facing a recall election. The question is why? Well, in America, it's because the most important constituencies for any local government tend to be homeowners, Property taxes provide a huge chunk of revenue for local governments, and as a result, homeowners hold tremendous sway. And these homeowners are obsessed with the prices of their properties in that they expect them to go up every single year, no matter what. Because homeownership is the primary way for most people to build any sort of wealth in this country. Homes in America are not seen as a place to live, but a long-term investment vehicle. And homeowners are convinced that having homeless shelters and low-income housing in their neighborhoods will depress home prices. Ironically, this leads to more homelessness, which depresses home prices even more. In July 2021, for example, Venice home prices were down 12.4% compared to last year. All due to the homelessness issue. But that's why they just want the cops to, quote, deal with it. As in, just get them out of here. And there are always psycho cops lying around, like Sheriff Villanueva, who are more than happy to oblige. But aside from the cruelty of it all it just doesn't even solve the problem. You're just playing a game of whack-a-mole throughout the the city as the homeless are shuffled from one neighborhood to the other and eventually back to where they came. Things like Project Homekey to buy back hotels are a good start, but they're only a start. Eventually, you need to build much, much more public housing that is independent from the marketplace. This will begin the process of decommodifying housing and stopping the ever-rising cost of living, which has become a problem all over the capitalist world. For example, Los Angeles has not built a single unit of public housing since 1955. And to see the potential of public housing, we can look to the past, specifically in the capital of Austria, Vienna. After the fall of the Austro-Hungarian War, uh, Empire in the wake of World War I, socialists won elections in the capital of the new Austrian Republic, Vienna. They controlled the city from 1919 until Hitler took over Austria in 1934. This period became known as Red Vienna, And one of Red Vienna's great accomplishments was building stunning public housing that improved the living conditions of the city's working class tremendously. And that legacy lives on today, where as many as two-thirds of the city's residents live in affordable public housing that looks like this.
4: Here in Vienna, two-thirds of its citizens live in subsidized social housing. But in the UK, less than one in ten live in a council house. And not only that, the quality and style is simply out of this world. So is this what you think of when you think of council housing? This is alt Erla, a social housing estate on the outskirts of Vienna. It may look like tough, brutalist architecture, but actually it's humane, caring design of the highest order. Oh, wow. Look at that. They've even got an indoor swimming pool as well. They have nurseries, schools and tennis courts all conveniently on site. I can't quite believe this. This is about long-term thinking, allowing people to put down roots, giving them stability. Just imagine if I proposed a high-density council housing estate with. Loads of swimming pools, indoor and outdoor, clubs, play spaces. I'd be left out of town because everybody would say you couldn't do that.
1: They interviewed in that documentary a woman who lived in one of those apartments for $600 a month. And it looked beautiful. And Austria's neighbor, Germany, is currently seeing a massive fight around housing in their capital city of Berlin. Berlin has seen housing prices go up dramatically in recent years as massive investment funds gobble up thousands of housing units and jack up prices. Does that sound familiar? Now renters are fighting back. This is from a piece in the FT. A radical campaign urging Berlin city government to expropriate 240,000 properties from Germany's biggest publicly listed residential landlords, accusing them of squeezing out lower-income long-term residents through shoddy maintenance and jacked-up rents. After collecting more than 350,000 petition signatures, their proposal, which targets corporate landlords with more than 3,000 apartments each, will be voted on in a local referendum in September. Polling suggests nearly half of Berliners support expropriation, which would force the companies to sell their properties to the city government at a fair price. What does it mean that my flat is now a commodity on the stock market, where the goal is to draw as much profit as possible for shareholders, said Jonas, who lives in a property in the Kreuzberg owned by Berlin's biggest listed landlord, Deutsch Wohnen, the main target of the campaign. These questions are now resonating across Berlin and beyond. Housing, has to be decommodified. If we leave it to the private capitalists, there will always be a housing problem. Friedrich Engels understood this way back in 1872 when he wrote a pamphlet called The Housing Question. He wrote... Quote, it is perfectly clear that the existing state is neither willing nor able to do anything to remedy the housing difficulty. The state is nothing but the organized collective power of the possessing classes, the landowners and the capitalists, as against the exploited classes, the peasants and the workers. What the individual capitalists, and it is here only a question of these, because in this matter, the landowner, who is also concerned, acts primarily as a capitalist, do not want, their state also does not want. If, therefore, the individual capitalists deplore the housing shortage but can hardly be persuaded even superficially to palliate its most terrifying consequences, then the collective capitalist, the state, will not do much more. Which is to say, in the words of Engels, we must protect Mike Bonin from these reactionary homeowners in Venice. We can't let him get recalled.
0: Nando, that was so good. Um, so, I, I, did... did... Kale, give you that quote from Engels. No, 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 I, no, no. Oh, I no. love it. Okay, no, I just thought I don't it was listen like to such kale. A kale. move. You, I don't did. listen okay. to him. Yeah. Good. Yeah. It's good to not listen to our producer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I loved your segment so much. Um, so I wanted to make a point about the NIMBYs in Venice, and it's not just Venice. We're seeing this uh, yeah. uh, certainly across the state, but also across the country, where people don't want um, homeless people in their backyard, even though they would be housed. But we have case studies of these types of programs working, right? So Utah is a really good example where they decided, because they had a huge problem with homelessness in Salt Lake City, and they're like, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to give them housing, like permanent housing, like no strings attached. We're not going to tell them they need to do X, Y, or Z. They just need to be in housing. And uh, guess what happened to I mean, look, obviously, we want to decommodify housing, there's no question about it. But for those who uh, don't buy that argument, um, putting homeless people in housing in Utah, increased the home values in the area because they're in homes, right? And, you know, obviously, there was um, social services to go along with that. And I think that's the other half of the equation that I think gets left out. Um, you know, you see Democrats in the state of California essentially setting people up for failure. They want the kudos. They want the brownie points for doing things like um, early release of nonviolent offenders. And I think that's the right way to go. But then they don't provide a a meaningful way for them to transition back into society. And as we know, housing is incredibly difficult for people who don't have felonies on their records. How are people who uh, just got released Uh, from prison going to find um, a a meaningful way to transition to society. So you see Democrats essentially set people up for failure. And that's a frustrating part of this as well. But I agree with you. Look, there are band-aids that we can implement, but really we need, um, I believe, a federal approach. um, And we need to stop seeing housing as a, a commodity, as something that people use to build wealth and more as a human right that everyone in this country, everyone in the world is entitled to. It's just, it's the decent thing to do.
1: Yeah. I mean, the, one of the problems in the United States is that power is so diffused in our federal system and it gives local communities so much power and Unfortunately, local communities can be quite reactionary, you know, like the smaller the unit, the more reactionary you become, like, think about like a family, like if something like threatens your family, you're like ready to murder someone, you know, but like the large and the larger the unit, the better it is to uh, achieve kind of progressive uh, aims, because it's just more scale. And it's like more, you know, you're not you, you don't feel as personally threatened by something. So you know, the, the flip side is some a place like uh, Japan, um, mm-hmm. which had a housing uh, crisis in the 1980s and the, a huge housing bubble that burst and, and you know, they had a homeless problem in, in Tokyo and things like that. And the federal government just took over housing policy. They just like they just said, like, we're not letting the local municipalities and they implemented kind of the opposite approach of like what we would argue for in something like ja- in a place like Jacobin, which is they basically... Mm-hmm federally enforced the deregulation of the of the housing market, which it creates all kinds of problems, but it, it, it did supply it did increase the supply of housing so dramatically that mm-hmm. um that that home prices and rentals have stayed relatively flat. You know, so they what you see is like insane amounts of new buildings going up all the time. Um and 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 with that very and it's just all kind of willy-nilly so um, but, but it does, at the, at the end of the day, the laws of supply and demand do kind of reign supreme. And the huge amount of supply, um, means that there's, uh, that, that, that rental prices and things like that, um, stay relatively flat in America. We have like the worst of both worlds in which we have mm-hmm. these choke points on supply. Um, and then the little bit we do allow to build is all luxury housing. Um, That's right. Yeah. And and so that just keeps on driving home prices up everywhere. Um, and there's just no one is like no one's doing anything uh, at, at the federal level. Certainly. I mean, this the, the the situation with the eviction moratorium was absolutely crazy. I mean, I didn't I didn't put it in my segment because it would have gotten too long. But, you know, the 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 federal appropriated the federally appropriated rental assistance um, that was passed uh, during the pandemic like they just can't even, they don't even get it out. Like it's just sitting there. Yeah. They can't even get it out and it would solve because the problem. States, it's,
0: it's so, I mean, this is another perfect example of Democrats setting people up for failure because they appropriated the money, but they knew pretty well that states didn't have like the infrastructure necessary to distribute that funding, which is why yeah. much of that funding hasn't been distributed yet. And so yeah. it's, it's, incredibly frustrating um, yeah. but I think you you touched on so many important points in your segment and I, I see this as something that's going to be a recurring uh, conversation on the show totally. but for now uh, we should bring on our guest she's been patiently waiting and um, I definitely feel a lot of gratitude for that joining us is Liza Featherstone she is a columnist for Jacobin and also a freelance journalist and the author of Selling Women Short the Landmark Battle for Workers' Rights at Walmart Liza mm. thank you so much for being here
7: Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: So you wrote two excellent pieces in Jacobin recently. Uh, The first is titled Elite Feminist Ran Cover for Andrew Cuomo. And the Hmm. second one is Barack Obama has been one of the worst ex-presidents ever. That was a cathartic read for sure. And I have lots of questions (laughs) for you. But let's start with the uh, Cuomo piece, because you touch on something so incredibly important in regard to not just liberal feminists, but the mainstream Democrats in Congress. So, so who are these women who pride themselves uh, as fighters for women, but who actually really turned out to be enablers of Andrew Cuomo's?
7: Oh, it is just amazing, Anna. Um, so, um, y- you'll you'll all rec- recall um, the founding of Times Up about four years ago. Um, which um, was a group of um, Hollywood women um, who were who um, were um, came together to take on the abuses of Hollywood bosses like um, Harvey Weinstein, um, and um, and their the name of the organization Times Up um, kind of became synonymous with the Me Too movement. Um, and um and and also with the you know with and and with, especially with the sort of hollywood side of it um and um and and the the group has been very high profile also very close um, to the democratic party um so um and and so, so there have been um, there have been a number of um, of um, scandals and semi scandals associated with that in the past um but um, the but the most recent and um, probably most outrageous yet was um, is um, that um, um, one of its um, founders and also the executive director um, co- were consulted by Cuomo about his, um, his his little problem with eleven women accusing him of sexual harassment um, and assault. Um, now just like flashing forward um, we um, now know from attorney general Tish James's extensive report in which she interviewed more than 700 people including including the people who involved in the cover-up um, of of all of this um you know so we now know from that report that these um, that these allegations were um, extremely solid and um, and that, Cuomo did, did indeed do the things he was accused of doing. Um, when, so when these, were, um, when these accusations first surfaced, um, Cuomo um, consulted um, with these Time's Up um, activists, drawing on their expertise in sexual harassment and assault, as well as their credibility um, from the Me Too movement, um, to um, basically ask them, how do I get out of this? Um, and, um, and, and they, they provided um, their expertise. They didn't say, you know, uh, fuck off Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> you know, you're exactly the kind of person this organization was founded to, um, you know, eject from power and humiliate. Um, they didn't say that at all. They, uh, they provided the advice as asked. Um, and um, as this has come to light um, you know people are um it's it's nice to see people are pretty indignant and um, and uh, a letter um, there was an open letter signed by many of times up's former clients um women who um, who had come to the organization for help in the past um, saying you know that that this is um, You know, not just, you know, that it's hypocritical in some narrow um, way um, or, you know, that it's, you know, or that it's wrong to, um, you know, side with abusers, all of which is true. But but correctly saying that um, that the organization was so identified with and so close to power that it was unable to um you know to to make the make the right call to um to be on the side of the workers be on the side of um of the regular people who were suffering from um, from from these abuses at the hands of their boss um so it's really an interesting scandal one of the um one of the founders um already had to step down Roberta Kaplan um and um she gave um she, she 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 read a resignation letter that um actually has the distinction of being um worse than cuomo's resignation letter yes of, yes you know, being even more of a failed apology yes and I'm so really glad that you mentioned that
0: because she. Seemed to make it seem as though she had been betrayed in her letter. Yeah. It was weird. Yeah.
7: Yeah. Yeah. She says, you know, sometimes shockingly, the men who we think on are on our side turn out to be abusers. It's like, um, you were the one you had infor- access to all that information. <laughs> you know, you were, you know, and you were enabling that. You're only upset now that other people know it, you know. Um right. It was just, and and also, and and she she gives us sort of a convoluted um, discussion of her conflicts of interest as a a lawyer versus um, an advocate in for the organization, um, which is also quite ridiculous because the reason that Cuomo called on her at all is because of her credibility, um, you know. It, with, with times up like you you know he wanted to be able to say i consulted with the me too leading me Too experts um and um and as, and the other thing is that um that times up has con- has um consistently been defending itself by saying um well we told we told him to tell the truth and not to attack um the abuser not to not to attack the accusers um, but the thing that that defense misses is that that's good PR advice. They were providing Governor Cuomo, um, the boss, the uh, abusive boss, w- with PR advice because you know don't you know tell the truth and don't attack um, your accuser is very good PR advice. Um, and so so for them to sort of say, well, you know, we were, um, you know, um, we, we were this we where this was our advice, you know, and, you know, try to draw moral authority from that is also really, um, really, really disgraceful. And it will be interesting to see if more um, time's up heads roll, um, because um, because I, I don't think that she's the um, she's she's clearly not the only person Um, in the organization implicated in this um, scandal
1: this reminds me a lot of um, uh, legendary liberal feminist uh, Gloria Steinem former CIA agent Gloria Steinem uh, defending Bill Clinton and attacking Monica Lewinsky um, in Mm -hmm. a very famous New York Times op-ed in the late 90s what is what is it about liberal feminism that is it that they just kind of keep on stepping on the same rake over and over again or is there something that like or they or are they just is there something more insidious going on what what what's what is happening there
7: i think it's a, a real class solidarity um you know that um that you know if your politics is really based on um getting more women bosses and getting more women in power um you know that's a politics of identification um, with uh, with the ruling class. That's a politics of identification with the boss. So, you know, when it's the boss versus women, um, they're uh, they're often going to take the boss's side because it's it's a ruling class ideology as much as it's a feminist ideology. You know, in the same yeah. way that socialist feminist feminism. Is as much socialism as it is feminism. Like it's both, right? Right. You know, so that's their, you know, the, they're the flip side of that. I,
1: I just yeah, really quickly. I just the the they <laughs> Emily Blunt just announced uh, a new her new movie with The Rock, which is about <laughs> yeah. the. the first female Pinkerton agency. And I just think that that might be the, that might be the most liberal feminist thing that's ever happened. I I I know. I I know.
7: It's just amazing. (laughs) It's just like, you you just like, I mean, you, you almost can't really picture the meeting in which that, that was you know, yeah. discussed, it sounds like it would be like a Jacobin editorial meeting where we're like, wouldn't it be funny <laughs> if they did this? Yes.
1: <laughs> like a parody, yeah. Yeah, exactly.
7: Yeah.
0: So, you know, it, it's interesting because you see this play out over and over again, um, not only with these nonprofits that claim to champion women, but you see it play out in the context of mainstream democratic campaigning where mm-hmm. they really position themselves as these warriors for the disenfranchised, uh, but when it comes to policy that would genuinely improve the lives of the people they're talking about or campaigning uh, for, they don't—they never deliver. So I think a good oh. example of that would be the uh, Senate floor vote on increasing the federal minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that would overwhelmingly benefit women and also women of color and so like what do you think i mean you talked about the class element to that and i think you're absolutely right about it um but i just feel like it it goes even further like it's even more insulting than that because they use disenfranchised people as props Mm -hmm. and my Mm -hmm. question is like do you think that people are becoming more and more privy to that Mm. because there there's still this like backlash when you compare the two parties and just how similar they are, people are under the assumption that there are like significant differences between the two. But my feeling is that most of those differences are rhetorical. Mm. Well, I mean,
7: I think that there, I think that there are differences between um, between the two parties. Um, but you're absolutely right that um, that on significant um, mass issues, the Democrats do very often. Um, completely fail to deliver. on the $15 minimum wage is a great example. Um, you know, and, and I think, um, you know, it's, um, I, 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 I do think that there, ha- there is, um, that there is backlash to that. And, you know, and in a sort of um, more, um, I mean, I think that, I think there's backlash to that in this, in the sense that, um, um, that I think there is more skepticism toward mainstream Democrats um than there uh, than there used to be and um on the other side of that I think there's also um more alternatives um, than there used to be, as we see the rise of um, as as we we see the rise of of different kinds of politicians. You know, like um, you know like uh, in people like Ilan Omar or um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez on the national level, and then we see many, um, many, many more um, rising um, figures like that, um, who who are. Um, closer to being um, real working class leaders um, um, as well as being um, as well as being um, genuine champions um, against um, um, racism and sexism um, and and the um, abuses of capitalism in their own way Um, so I I think that I think we are sort of seeing some of that change I mean I think that you know five or six years ago the um, the um, idea that, um, mainstream Democrats, um, were, um, the, um, were the progressive, um, force and, you know, and were the, um, the force against, you know, the patriarchy and against um, white supremacy. I I think that that was, um, largely unquestioned. And I think people are, are becoming a lot more skeptical of that now.
1: Were you invited to Barack Obama's 60th birthday party?
7: it wasn't that's what it's all about you weren't? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah clearly
7: yeah
1: it was a great time <laughs> yeah,
7: Exactly. Yeah. No, what, I, what? I, I really wanted to um you know um party with vernon jordan and all those guys and that was great, yeah so.
1: yeah it was great you know the guy from migos was there dwayne wade was there it was cool. <laughs> yeah. uh, why why are you so mad at Obama? What why what what prompted you to write the 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 piece calling him one of the worst ex presidents ever?
7: <laughs> yeah, besides the fact that I wasn't invited. Um, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> um, so um, well, I, um, I've, I've been getting madder and madder um, at um, Obama um, as as he you know gets into his ex presidency. I mean, you know, obviously. Um, we, we shouldn't expect too much of ex-presidents. They, after all, were, um, you know, they're retired from being the CEO of the world bourgeoisie. Like, of course, they're going to be terrible people for the most part, um, you know, but um, but I, I do think that they have a certain, um, that there is a certain moral authority that they have um, in our society and they have a, whether earned or unearned, and they have, um, um, and they generally have, recognized that to some extent and felt obligated to do some things in the public interest you know they um they often get involved in um in large-scale charity um you know they um I mean obviously the best example of an ex-president is Jimmy Carter who you know has spent his time building houses for the homeless and even defending democracy in Venezuela against the United States, which is kind of a rare um, thing, Um, you know, so, you know, so with Jimmy Carter being the the best example, but, um, but ex-presidents in, in, in general, um, you know, they either sort of um, lead a a quiet dignified life largely out of sight, or they, you know, will occasionally get involved in, in big humanitarian things. And, you know, we sort of accept that that's their role um the the Clint Clintons um really started to um, take that in another direction with their own um, use of the uh, of the sort of ex-president brand to amass enormous amounts of wealth um and um, and you know once you know um, like once once people do that they're really um placing themselves in um, the you Know in the company of um, the most antisocial, parasitical people on earth, and, you know, so they're going to become worse people, right? I mean, they're just like they're that's who they're hanging out with all day, um, so, um, but still, Epstein, but Clinton's di- yeah, yeah, Epstein, all, of, all those people, but still. You know the 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 Clintons sort of have maintained this facade of you know like they they do um, you know they do humanitarian things. Um, they did attempt to defeat Trump in the election. They were very involved in that, if we recall. I mean, like the, it's not as though they have completely um, um, drifted out of um, of of the public of of any attention to the public interest. Um, Obama has really. Um, gone in the clintonian direction and then some um and um, and you know some um, so so what what set me off was this ridiculous party um it, you know so he's like he's having um he he was just having this um massive party that um that was um you know as uh, you know, as the CDC and the White House were really clearly struggling with what kind of messages to give Americans about the Delta variant and what is safe and what is unsafe, um, you know, um, the Obamas were just clearly like, we don't give a shit about that and we're just <laughs> going to have this massive party on Martha's Vineyard. Um, and um, and it was clear that they then had to be talked um out of it, but talking being talked out of it meant that they just, they had like 400 celebrities instead of the even bigger party that they had planned. Um, So, 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 you know, so so that was sort of a mild bit of contempt for the, um, for the public interest, but um, we've seen um, much more um, serious examples. Um, The, um, the museum that he's currently um, building in Chicago um, um, drastically infringes on a public park. The community has been protest around it, has been protesting it for years. <laughs> um, there, have, there are many different kinds of plants and bird species in the park that will be uh, very negatively impacted by um, this, um, this um, super ugly structure. That he's um, erecting um, um, in uh, like a public park um, that will cut off all kinds of light sources to the park and also look awful because it's a it's a quite um, beautiful old like well designed park, you know. So it's just really I mean, and the and the community has been protesting it for years and um and I <laughs> wrote about it at the end of last year um, and what was one one thing that was particularly. Um, Um, A particularly disturbing irony um, um, was that um, um, it was actually a ruling by Amy Coney Barrett um, his job that allowed him to go ahead with the library. Um, And in her ruling, she argued that the community activists didn't have standing um, to um, protest um, the park because... It didn't hurt them as individuals. It was just the yeah. argument that they were making was on behalf of, the, like, this will affect yeah. our community negatively. And if you think about that, that is a profoundly reactionary argument. <laughs> um, I mean, like, that's like really, that really takes, um, I mean, so, so, so Obama is basically depending on this very reactionary bit of legal reasoning, which is a very dangerous precedent um, to build his library. Like he's, he, his, his library rests on um, a legal foundation of total un, um, annihilation of the idea <laughs> of the public interest. Well, so, yeah. Bessner's very I mean, Bessner's
1: very mad that also, our friend Eddie Bessner is very mad that the, the Obama library won't have a research center and it won't be overseen by the federal research association there's like some federal agency that that oversees all the presidential libraries and obama's will be run by a private foundation and won't have yes. any of his presidential records or anything like that available for historians to um yeah. study his presidency year, in years to come like like with all other presidents wow. even the bad ones have yes you know like nixon has a that. presidential library and a yeah. research thing where you can look through his things obama yeah, won't have I've that investors the Jer- very Ford angry library. about that it's a,
7: yeah, real, like, exactly. it's a real library it has archives and archivists you know Wow. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, no, that's right. I should have talked about that in this column too, because it really is that. Really is also um, totally obscene.
0: Well, I mean, to be fair to you, there there are <laughs> there's so, there's so many. There's examples. so many things to
1: choose from. Yeah,
7: <laughs> yeah there's.
0: So yeah, I mean, I, I actually think um, some of the other examples you highlight are important to mention, um, especially his involvement in uh, the NBA strike. So. Oh,
7: yeah. So, um, I mean, if, if people recall, um, last summer, um, you know, with, um, all the protests around the killing of black men like Jacob Blake and George Floyd, um, the, um, the, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of athletes were asking themselves, you know, what can we do? What can we do to amplify these, um, these protests and, um, stand with our communities, Um, you know, and, um, um, and the, um, and the NBA players, um, were, um, um, walked out and were, and were contemplating a longer strike and, um, Obama, um, got involved, um, talked to LeBron (laughs) James, talked to the, um, head of the players union and told them to get back on the court, you know, and, um, it's just amazing you know and this was sort of the um one of the biggest moments of um you know people in the street um protesting against racism and um you know obama was um be at the very least kind of a um a, a, a tribune against racism <laughs> i don't know yeah. um you know and uh but but the fact that, but i think that that it was such um that it was a mass protest and that it was a labor protest um all of that was like you know i mean he knows his job as a member of the ruling class is to um shut that down and he did yeah. um, i mean i think it was actually really similar um to his role in the democratic primary yeah. yep. of organizing i mean he um you know the um we um you know, the some some when the ruling class organizes, they sometimes organize really effectively. And this was an example. I mean, he organized um, the um, um, the centrist candidates to drop out and get behind Biden. Um, and it was really kind of an emergency for them to stop Bernie. Um, and then um, on top of that, you know, really, um, you know, um, talk to and put pressure on Bernie to drop out. That part isn't the more significant part. The more significant part was really organizing the centrists. Yeah. Um, but um, but you know the, the the net effect was, you know, most of the time he's like lounging on Richard Branson's yacht. But you know when does he get involved? <laughs> you know, to um, you know in something affecting the public. You know, to defeat Bernie Sanders, like the you know the 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 first. Um, you know, possibility in a long time for um, the masses of the American public um, to uh, be represented in government. So priorities, it's, it's funny,
1: you know? yeah. It shows it shows the power of ideology because it was also reported in the early days of the primary that Obama was pressuring or a pressure suggesting to Joe biden that he shouldn't run because he he knew that joe is like this old guy who's kind of losing it at this point um and he was like listen joe you don't have to do this but like despite his own personal reservations about joe's capacity to be president you know once uh once the you know the the rubber hit the road he was like no we need to stop (laughs) we need to do it yeah we need to stop bernie um yeah and and i think that's right and it is
7: interesting given um I think actually um, he and some other Democrats did, I think, a little bit underestimated Biden's electability. Yeah. I mean that's really not was not never the problem because they knew Biden. him
1: personally. You yeah, know? I They're know like, this yeah. guy.
7: I this know, guy. But, like most people don't know him personally. You know? <laughs> exactly. So, like, they, yeah. people were basically fine with him. You know? um, yeah. so, um, but but I think um, I, I think they I think they kind of underestimated Biden's electability in that way. But it is telling that given you're right nando that um given his um all his well documented reservations about biden's electability that he was he still was very clear that it would be better to have biden um, as the nominee than bernie sanders yeah.
0: you know final question for me because i mean anyone paying attention can see how devastating some of uh, the obama era policies were, especially, you know, post-2008 and the response to it, it only uh, further exacerbated inequality. And then you see his activity and behavior, you know, outside of the White House, Mm post-presidency. And I mean, I certainly do not have favorable feelings toward him, but you look at polling and the majority of the Democratic electorate has just a massively favorable opinion of him. Totally.
7: Yeah. yeah he's very popular um
0: yeah. yeah and i should say um um you know
7: we were talking about cuomo earlier and um you know i i think on um in a, in a at jacobin you know in our writings and in our broadcasts we are usually um on the side of the masses and the mass public but um you know, Cuomo's yeah. really very popular too. If <laughs> yeah. if there had been an election he would have probably won. You know, I mean, you know, unless there was a really um viable um you know challenger. But it, it's very uh, it, I think that um um uh, you know and and I and Obama is very popular also. I think part of the reason for that is that um I mean Republicans are just so awful, you know, that yeah. I mean that you know people sort of elevate these these liberal figures as um as the the best alternative um you know and um and and i think that in in obama's case it's um it's also slightly understandable because of the level of irrational hatred that he inspired from the right, much of which was very racist, um, and all of which was completely deranged. I mean, just in terms of like, he's a so the idea that he was a socialist and, you know, all those things. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, there's a I, there there's a sort of um, a way in which that kind of vilification From the right can lead to um, you know a more um, more, you know more love from the left, especially the center left. Um, In terms of in in Cuomo's case, it's I think far less excusable because. Um, the Republicans in New York are not even a major force. So, um, yeah. you know, if you're, you know, if you were like, if you were wearing a Cuomo sexual t-shirt last year, <laughs> you you were just really not paying very much attention to either what Cuomo was doing or to the many organized alternatives to him, you know.
1: Well, um, I, 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 on in that vein, I have to, I, I cannot resist, I have to ask the two ladies on the show. Because I understand Obama's sexual appeal, I as a man I understand it. He's a cool, handsome dude, um, charming, funny, uh, all that stuff. The Cuomo sexual thing, like I, I know that you guys are not on board, but like, is there a place where you can put yourselves in that mindset to to explain it in some way? Because it strikes me as like this utterly bizarre thing that was happening. And I remember talking to. To, to some women in my life when when it was at the height of it. And I'm like, I was like, what do you, what is, what do you guys see in this guy? Like, what is going, what was going on there? Why the, why the sort of sexual appeal of Andrew Cuomo, this like disgusting man, very obviously disgusting. Very
7: obviously <laughs> disgusting
0: man. Yeah. What's yeah. going on there? Um, Yeah. I have a few thoughts on it. You, you have any. Uh... Yeah i'll be I'll be brief. I mean, i I don't know if it was so much about his sexual appeal. I just think that when Cuomo yes, homosexual no. became a thing, it was more about, look, the country was terrified. I mean, we yes. were dealing with the beginning stages of the pandemic, and we also unfortunately had a lack of leadership in the federal government. And it was very easy to juxtapose Trump's disastrous coronavirus press briefings with that of Cuomos, which, if you just isolate Cuomo's press briefings, they weren't really a big deal. He was just reading things off a of screen and, and, but he sounded competent and people were looking for safety and comfort. Yes. So I think that's where it came from. Honestly, But that's like I, a
1: sexual thing.
0: I, I, I just <laughs> like that's I don't, cute. I get that,
1: but like <laughs> yeah. now I want to have sex with him. You know, <laughs> I,
7: I, I think so. I think that that, I, I think, I think that was completely it on an end that, um, um, Trump was so um, completely in denial that there even was a virus, um, and you know, then um, and then completely, you know, digging into the most irrational possible um, reactions, um, a- encouraging the most um, ignorant and reactionary elements of our society to kind of mobilize. I mean, it was terrible. Like, I mean, if you if you think back on it. Um, and, uh, um, and and I think that, you know, in contrast, Cuomo seemed kind of statesman-like in a way that, um, you know, we now know he was letting them, people die in nursing homes and he was covering it up. And, um, and we did know at the time that he was presiding over hospital closures even after the um, pandemic began. Um, so... Um, so the 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 homosexual um you know ador- wave of adoration was never exactly rational, but on the other hand, just hearing a public official acknowledge that this was really happening and explaining what they were trying to do about it um i think um fed such a deep desire by the public for some kind of leadership that um yeah, I mean, I think people did experience that as a kind of Of arrows and you know that's sad (laughs) but that's kind of where we were at
0: (laughs) totally (laughs) Liza Featherstone uh you've been wonderful thank you for taking the time to have this conversation with us everyone go to Jacobin immediately check out her uh two pieces elite feminist ran cover for Andrew Cuomo and Barack Obama has been one of the worst ex-presidents ever Lisa thank you again thank you so much both of you Thank you. I
1: also encourage people to seek out Wonkette's response to Liza's column about uh, about Ooh. Obama because it is a Ooh. it is a <laughs> um, masterclass in in a sort of certain type of liberal feminist writing that was especially very popular in the 2000s. That you know you don't see as much anymore as you used to, but that one that was like uh, that was great. The it's it was a nice nice little blast from the past.
0: I got to check that out. Um, yeah. All right. Well, uh, that does it for today's show. Everyone, um, please like, and share the stream, subscribe to the Jacobin magazine. If you haven't already and, uh, help to support the show any way you can. Um, we also have a Patreon page. Uh, so become a patron and you get the entire episode uninterrupted. Uh, you know, we, live in the society we live in (laughs) so people got to pay their bills (laughs) so people are saying they got bills (laughs) but thank you so much again for watching um we love you guys and have an awesome weekend